and welcome to the Midwest Football Podcast, episode 37. Hard to believe, but we're already on the last Midwest Football Podcast episode of the 2023 calendar year. We will still be recording and reacting this season, but as we record on December 27th, there aren't many days left of 2023 to talk in, and we definitely have plenty to talk about for the eight Midwestern NFL teams that we cover. The Bears, Bengals, Browns, Colts, Lions, Packers, Steelers, and Vikings all had some very interesting developments that we'll get to in a minute. I'm Joe Smith, one of your hosts for this podcast, and I am here in a motor city that barely knows what to do with itself. Who cares if we had to sacrifice the Pistons to make it happen? Lions are division champs for the first time in three decades. That's the talk here anyway. My co-host, Brian Rosenquist, spent the holidays back in Chicago, but he's with us here to talk about all the action. Welcome back to Orlando, Brian. Hello, Midwestlanders and friends. Very exciting time in Detroit. Um, it's a shame uh, JFK is about to double the losses, uh, missed uh, playoff games in his, uh, since he was uh, taken out. So that's a stat that's true. He's only missed one uh, Detroit Lions playoff game. That's kind of crazy. We had an argument about it while watching the Bears game with my brothers and my cousins. So, yeah, they didn't think that the Lions had been to the pl- playoff game since JFK. And I was like, I think the Lions have been in at least one in our playoff game in our in our lifetime. That's how long ago it was because a lot of my cousins are 30s and they didn't remember the 91 uh, season. So uh, just to put in perspective how long suffering the Lions uh, streak of fertility is. So, um Congratulations to my Detroit friends, and apparently the uh, first time in uh, 70 years that the Lions and the Browns have won double-digit games. So congratulations to them, too. Well, yeah, I mean, the last time, and we talked about this on our Facebook, the last time that both the Lions and the Browns had 10 wins was them meeting in the championship game of the NFL in 1953, which was also the game that Bobby Lane is credited with inventing the two-minute offense. It was the first two-minute drive to win a game. Mm. We mentioned some of that a little bit on our uh, Curse of Bobby Lane video, episode 13, if anybody's interested to go back and check that out. But yeah. In general, the the curse is in general, number 13. But Bobby Lane was the feature. Bobby Lane was the biggest story because you could turn that anywhere from farce to tragedy. But put this in perspective, there are radio professionals here in Detroit that have been on the air 25 years and have never been able to call a Lions home playoff game. Yeah. Like, this is a career for broadcasters. Let's be honest, too. When you throw it out throw it out there, uh, Motor City Dan Campbell played on the 0-16 Lions, so to come back to Detroit and get them their first division title and playoff game in so many years is got to be pretty exciting to uh, go through all that pain. And what I like about it is the lions under Campbell just always seem motivated. And even that Owen 16 team under Marinelli, they were always, they didn't have the talent, but they always seemed to be in it, which I never thought they were deserving of their Owen 16, you know, moment in history, but you know, they lost a lot of close ones, but Still 0-16, but it's good. got to be feel good for Dan Campbell to get, you know, exercise those demons. Yeah, he called it going into the Minnesota game, he called it a hat and t-shirt game, meaning you get them if you win. Mm. But 
we'll talk a lot more about the Lions and the Vikings who gave one heck of a effort against the Lions at home in that game. We'll talk more about both teams later in the episode. If you like the show, please do help our podcast grow by giving us a review, commenting, recommending the show to your friends, sharing a link to it. Anything that you can do to help more people listen to us is huge beyond what we can express, and we would be very grateful. Uh, you can always contact us through any of our socials or our email, midwestfootballpodcast at gmail.com, to get in on the conversation. In this week's episode, we'll, of course, bring you all the Week 16 reactions that you come here for. But also, we don't normally talk about Kansas City, but their collapse is such a big story, we definitely want to discuss it. Speaking of collapses, we'll put the Brock Purdy MVP nonsense to bed. But first, we talk about letting Russ cook with NyQuil. The Broncos (laughs) have benched Russell Wilson for the rest of the season while still being in the playoff hunt. That is odd because Russell Wilson clearly had a better game than season than last year. They had a rough start giving up 70 points. I don't think you can blame that on Russell Wilson in the Miami game. But they had their stuff together. And uh, there was the the, fit, the office meme of Dwight and Angela where it was like uh, going around a couple weeks ago where it was like the the, the six and one Chiefs and then like the one in, you know, two and five uh Broncos and then just creeping up because a couple of weeks ago they were within one game of first place of the uh, Chiefs. Even though the Chiefs have gone one and one, the uh, Broncos have lost their last two games, including three of their last four, which, you know, put some squirrel in the playoff hunt along with the Raiders somehow, by the way. But well, them later. The, weird, the, the, the general thought was one of the reasons why you hire a big name and big personality like Sean Payton is it's really the only way you can get out of the Russell Wilson contract and trade fiasco. And there was a lot of rumors going into this season that Sean Payton was looking for any excuse he could to move on from Russell Wilson. And it looks like the last four games are kind of his excuse because it's a really weird thing to turn away from a veteran former Super Bowl champion quarterback when you're still in the playoff hunt with two weeks to go. Do you have any thoughts on that? Why they might have done it now? I don't get why they're going to do it now except to basically punt on the season and try and see what they've got with you know whatever dead body they have behind him. The Trevor Simeon? You know, whoever. I mean, let's get real. Russell Wilson has not been good even this season. Last year, he was a disaster. This year, he's a capable game manager when he gets strong performances from the defense and the running game. You don't want Russell Wilson throwing 40, 45 times or RPOing 40, 45 times. You want him running five to seven times and throwing like 20, 25. That's not what you pay a big time quarterback like his contract to do so don't be surprised if they're going to do everything they possibly can to try and get out of russell wilson's contract so are you saying that he better be a choir boy in this offseason i don't know how else you get outside of his contract without off the field issues yeah (laughs) yeah that's that's about the size of it because i mean they're going to look at anything they can possibly look at because he's got so much guaranteed money so much guaranteed money Mm mm-hmm But speaking of dysfunctional AFC West teams, we have to talk about Kansas City because 
to me, what what kept running through my mind as I was watching the Kansas City, Oakland, sorry, Kansas City, Las Vegas, sorry, Oakland, <laughs> was the emperor has no clothes. What we saw was the culmination of the kinds of things we've sort of been talking about on and off camera for most of the season. And there are multiple problems with this Kansas City team, especially on offense, which has turned into a three ring circus. So you got a lot of issues going on. I mean, it, it, it people are pointing to the Tyreek Hill MVP candidacy in Miami and the loss of him two years ago, but they won the Super Bowl last year. Um, this seems like a lot of things going on because last year when they won the Super Bowl, they had a lot of rookie contributors right away, but we're not seeing anybody step up despite throwing draft picks at, you know, uh, Sky Moore, uh, Rashi Rice, you know, and then they're also trading for Kadarius Tony, who's an all-time blunder. Rashi Rice has played all right. He's the one outside receiver that Mahomes seems to have any trust in whatsoever. He's not Justin Jefferson. He's nowhere near Addison. He's not Amon Ra. He's a competent outside NFL starting receiver. And with Travis Kelsey's diminishing skill set, one okay receivers not a super bowl contender and we're also seeing a loss of eric b who had the washington offense playing fairly well most of the season if you go deep dive their autopsy you'll find the defense really fell apart especially when they trade their defensive ends what's your take what who who's the offensive coordinator now after eric b has gone matt Nagy. well uh, and Matt Nagy uh, calling the shots. So uh, we didn't see that in Chicago for four years get worse every year. But hey, he got his uh, blood ring last year by just jumping on the bandwagon and doing nothing. And now that they've asked him to do stuff again, I'm guessing he's still running the 2017 uh, Chiefs offense because that was the running joke in Chicago. They looked really good in 2018 when he was running the 2017 Chiefs offense, but not so great in 2021 when he was running the 2017 Chiefs offense. And even with Pat Mahomes, he looks like Mitchell Trubisky. No, he's not that bad. Not going to go that Yeah, I mean, you have to start putting some of the blame at the feet of Patrick Mahomes, though, because he was at the center of both of the – defensive turnovers that led to you know the the pick six and the fumble return for touchdown Mahomes was involved in both even though he wasn't blamed for the fumble on the weird trick play it was a designed snap to the running back who immediately tried to hand it off to Mahomes and ended up on the turf and just you know weird play but we're seeing multiple players in Kansas City with tantrums on the sideline so is it safe to say we're starting to see the Beatles break up? And do you think it's because a Philadelphia fan and named Taylor Yoko Ono Swift uh, possibly is <laughs> infiltrating? Have you heard that theory that the, that she's uh, trying to get revenge on the Chiefs by, for beating the uh, Eagles in the Super Bowl? And apparently she was an Eagles fan. <laughs> Actually put up by Travis Kelsey's brother. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sexiest um, man alive nominee, Ch- Ch- Jason Kelsey. <laughs> what I really think that nobody's actually talking about is this offensive line for Kansas City is not good. Mm. I was watching this game, and it seemed like three out of every four plays, Mahomes was running for his life within a second and a half of the drop back. Mm. Like he was going, to, he was having 
less than a second to throw before the pass rush was getting there. Weird that they addressed the offensive line after this happened in the Super Bowl a couple years ago when they lost to the Tampa Bay Tom Brady's. It's weird how they fall apart with uh, letting Orlando Brown walk to uh, Baltimore, who is now, I believe, the number one seeded team right now after trouncing uh, the, the Niners. Yeah, more on that, mm-hmm. too. Uh, before we get to that, which we might as well just jump right ahead to, I do want to make a quick note that Antonio Pierce, who's the interim head coach for the Raiders right now, he deserves to have that interim tag taken off. He's done an incredible job with less than ideal talent. So I give him all the credit in the world. That being said, the Raiders did just become the first team in decades to win a game after not completing a pass after the first quarter. Well, so how much of do you think this is the coach? Because let's look back on their last three games. The they- Raiders? Yes, they, they they didn't score an offensive point beating the Chiefs this week. Then the previous week, they won, what, 63 to 21, <laughs> up 42 to nothing at the halftime. And then the previous week, they um, lost three to nothing. This has been a very weird um, three-game run for Antonio Pierce's uh, Raiders, to be honest. Um I give him credit. He has them in the game, but I mean, they're just, they're, it, it just seems like a weird team that's kind of fluked their way into some wins with a wacky schedule or lacky game results. Do you think this is sustainable? Cause I know you talked about keeping the team, but in the last time we saw an interim coach go, it was Carolina that turned into a way bigger dumpster fire. And I could see that happening with the Raiders. To be honest. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Ultimately you win with players. For your coach to make a difference, I mean, you're going to get a top three coach. I don't know that Pierce is that, but you also wouldn't have to pay him like that. At the end of the day, you've got a coach that is not losing games, so that's better than a bottom third coach right there. Just at that that point, he's showing he at least belongs in the league. Why not let him stick around? Because the Raiders like chasing big names and shiny objects, so they're likely to go after some sort of like Jim Harbaugh type. That is true. They are the most attention deficit ownership group in the league. And for the record, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate of why the Raiders likely won't extend him, which I kind of agree with you. He's done a good job. His team has been prepared and they've been playing hard. And I, I couldn't even, I don't even know which quarterback is it still Aiden O'Connell. I mean, he didn't complete a pass in three quarters to win, beat the chiefs. So, I mean, it's not like he has great quarterback player players to play behind these last two victories. So. Yeah. I give him a lot of credit for beating the chiefs at Arrowhead, which does admittedly tarnish what the lions did, but um, <laughs> the chiefs were playing better earlier in the season. If you want to fair. You know, Fair. if you want to keep uh, keep up with the Lions, rah-rah. Uh, <laughs> Fair. But I would also say that we blew out the Chargers. There's, If there are problems with the roster, it's less than ideal. He's not one of them. And that's saying something when you've got a team that's already dumped their coach and has every reason to start looking for tea times. So mm-hmm. good for them. And technically, they still have a shot at the playoffs. Um, if they went out, I was listening to that. Yeah, they do. Today. 
Kansas City is now mathematically eliminated from the one seed, and they're not out of the woods to lose the division. The Raiders can still win the West, although I think it's one of those they have to win out and Kansas City has to lose out kind of things. I believe they have a lot of tiebreakers against wildcard opponents, so the more nine and eight teams piled up, the better it is for the Raiders if they win out. Fair enough. But let's switch over to San Francisco and Baltimore, that Ravens team you were talking about just a little bit ago. Um, The narrative after the game, which Brock Purdy had, what, three interceptions? He was knocked out of the game. Five? Might three first half. Five turnovers total. I think they were all interceptions. Yeah. The full full Delome. The narrative was Brock Purdy loses league MVP. In my opinion, you should have never had it. He fell from the number one uh, betting odds for MVP to number six overnight. And it was four interceptions and one lost fumble for the five turnovers, in case you're wondering. Yeah. He was knocked out of the game, but it was very late when that happened, and it was already out of hand. So he probably could have come back in, but they, you know, why risk it with a team that <laughs> that lost – last year in the playoffs because they ran out of healthy bodies at quarterback. Well, I mean, don't worry. Darnold stepped right in and threw an interception of his own in limited work. So they did get to five interceptions as a team. And um, yeah, so the thing about it is it seems like everyone's dancing on Purdy's grave because he is terrible or he's an MVP and there's nothing in between. But in reality, he's a pretty competent quarterback that's in a really good situation and has been taking full advantage of it and um just playing devil's advocate on the you know mvp talk or death to the mvp talk is he did leave the previous game with a stinger and he didn't look right i mean he there's a good chance he didn't play well due to playing with an injury and he also left with a sit with the injury and possibly re-aggravated it so that'll be worth watching especially since you just mentioned they literally we're down to Christian McCaffrey at one point during the uh, NFC Championship game last year before bringing Brock Purdy back in with a, uh, you know, a strained or torn UCL in his throwing arm where he couldn't throw the ball. So it'll be interesting to worth watching. Um, I'm going to give the Ravens some credit. It was an epic beatdown, and um, maybe Brock Purdy will rebound after this. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the Niners do next week. Um, but I also agree. I don't think you can win an MVP with a game like this in a high profile situation against another good team. Well, I also think that supporting Brock Purdy for MVP is a slap in the face to all of the pro bowlers that he plays with. That's lining up you know, Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle, Debo, all those guys and saying, you know what? You didn't actually do any of this. He did it. He made you better. He made you special. So in Purdy's defense, he he was supporting Christian McCaffrey's MVP candidacy. So do you think he yes. purposely threw a bunch of interceptions to say, hey, look, I'm right. It's really Christian McCaffrey that's <laughs> me. And he's just really being a good teammate. <laughs> no, I I I do give him personally a lot of credit. I'm not this is not a rip on Brock Purdy because he did exactly what you're supposed to do as a teammate. Who acknowledged, he acknowledged reality Yeah, when he said, look, I am not the most valuable player, even on my team, let alone the league. 
Mm-hmm. He and didn't he's... put it like that. I don't think but... he's being humble when he says it because this is Mr. Former Mr. Irrelevant who has, to his credit, played well enough that they literally dumped the third overall pick who's still on a rookie contract and trade Lance onto Dallas's bench. And he won the job and he's been good, but he's also been in the perfect situation. Great coaching, great scheme, great line, great weapons, etc. And really, the conversation shouldn't be about Purdy and whether or not he deserves MVP. It should really be about, do we overrate quarterbacks? Because I would personally think the MVP candidacy should be down to Christian McCaffrey and Tyreek Hill and maybe Lamar Jackson, given the last couple games. Although I've also seen stats that Lamar Jackson has the same stats in the last 17 games as Justin Fields, who we will talk about that more later. Whose future is in doubt. Yes. For some reason. (laughs) Barry Sanders chimed in on Twitter or the X machine, basically saying, guys, the year I ran for 2,000 yards, I had to split the MVP with Brett Favre. That was embarrassing. They'll They'll cram a quarterback in there even if a whole bunch of votes goes to McCaffrey or Tyreek Hill. We see it with rookie of the year all the time, too. It's always a quarterback, just no matter how much, you know, a lot of skill position. It's not as bad as MVP, but it is. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate. My own devil's advocate. Quarterback is the most valuable position, but it gets old. And I, I don't think Tua is what he is without Tyreek Hill and Waddle. And Purdy sure as hell isn't that with that. You know what I mean? They're not MVP candidates, Tua or Purdy, in my opinion. They're fine game manager quarterbacks with awesome weapons that can take the, to the house on three-yard dump passes and screens and uh, slants. You have to recognize what the league MVP is. Because if you're actually talking about who is the most valuable player in the NFL, it's Patrick Mahomes, even if his stats are awful. And the team is falling apart around it. So what we're really saying is which very valuable player had the best statistical year above his norm. Or best narrative. I mean, Purdy's been a fun content creator because he's so divisive, to be honest, if it wasn't for Taylor Swift and Deion Sanders. Right. Thank you. Thank you, obnoxious 49er fans. (laughs) Which is really who's shoveling all this stuff, which I heard. It was the turnovers. We ran the offense up and down on Baltimore. We just beat ourselves. Okay, yeah, goodbye. In any case, on to the teams that we really want to talk about, the the Midwest teams. If you want to get involved in the conversation, MidwestFootballPodcast at gmail.com. But let's start our reactions to Week 16. Starting with the Thursday game, the Steelers uh, just beat down the Bengals in a game that was over pretty quickly and left the Bengals wondering what happened. So what did happen? When we look back on our picks, this was the only one either of us got wrong. And that was me from last week. You were five and I was four and one. And honestly, the Steelers played like the Jake Browning Bengals. And I guess it was a Christmas miracle because Rudolph, the smash face quarterback, uh, Mason Rudolph, um, just started throwing deep to pick it and started unlocking the whole offense and making big plays and winning a fantasy football semifinal games for nobody because nobody was playing Rudolph or uh, Pickens at this point, probably. Not unless they were in a best ball. But yeah, analytics perspective, the Bengals had the worst defense 
in the NFL. And this showed here because Pickens would just beat his man over and over again. It was tough to watch. Agreed. And this is a this is a theme that was interesting with the Bengals run, who I believe are still eight and six uh, in a playoff hopeful. But they've been walking on water for a while now with that defense has been statistically a bottom three in a lot of categories. And it hasn't really come to fruition in scoring. But apparently you can only hold down Mason Rudolph so much before that off defense gets torched, you know. And I believe uh didn't help that uh Jamar Chase was out. So do you think that <laughs> Jamar Chase should be the MVP because the Bengals run completely fell apart when he came out? Yeah. Yes, just the massive size of the subtraction. Um Yeah, exactly. Well, look, Cincinnati, this was not just the Steelers running up and down on offense, although that was a big part of it. Cincinnati went over three in the red zone, over two on fourth down, while averaging six yards per play. Six yards per carry or per play? Per play. Okay. There was a lot of struggle without Chase because there was no security blanket. There was no place to go for the tight throws when they absolutely had to make one. The Bengals didn't score in the first half. Uh, they had a turnover on downs in the red zone and two actual turnovers besides. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe Chase helps them make better decisions, but, you know, this was a brutal offensive game, and you got to give some credit to the Steelers' defense for that. Well, it's it's crazy because I'm guessing – I think a lot of it was on one big touchdown, but, I mean, T. Higgins did – play his best big play Jamar Chase with 440 yards on five catches and a touchdown. Although that touchdown was 80 of those. So the other four plays press were okay. Um, I'm kind of wondering what happened to Tyler Boyd when you mentioned they couldn't move the chains. I thought that was his claim to fame and why he was making 10 plus million per year to be a slot receiver. I'm wondering if he's kind of losing it a little bit too. So we're starting to see come of the, some of the wheels falling off. Um, Cause that used to be one of the best three you know, ride receiver combos in the game. But if it's down to two and then one of them's out, it's not that scary anymore. It, it falls apart in a hurry. Yeah, the the Steelers put Porter pretty much one-on-one on T. Higgins and just locked him down. And then you had all of those great linebackers and safeties just kind of keeping an eye on Tyler Boyd where where he normally finds all kinds of space to run. There just isn't any. In the Steelers' defense, because that's the strength of their team, you have to kind of attack them on the outside or try and outmuscle them, and good luck with that. Yep. But more on Pickens. His day was four passes, 195 yards, and two touchdowns. The two touchdowns were 86 yards and 66 yards. And Pickens has only had more than 60 receiving yards once since October. But now he's got a thousand receiving yards and he's averaging 18 yards a catch. Hmm. Weird, weird season for George Pickens. Very weird. I mean, he th- this was a game that you expect him to have with the big plays and stuff that he was made for. He's had games where he was like a game manager early in the season when Deontay Johnson was out before he came back and stuff. So it's it's been quite a roller coaster ride for him, but right now as it stands, both the Steelers and the Bengals are eight and seven and uh you know, 
Tomlin's in position to keep that winning streak going. Mike Tomlin says Mason Rudolph is, quote, scheduled to be the quarterback this week, but Kenny Pickett is still being evaluated. If you're Mike Tomlin, do you outright bench Mason Rudolph for Kenny Pickett? Or maybe you don't say that's what you're doing, but if Kenny Pickett's close, just hold him out one more week and see what you got with Mason Rudolph? I mean, the way Rudolph has played, it's I think he's warranted another start. And uh, the other thing, too, is like, this goes back to a problem with I think a lot of coaches have is we don't have a good um, bearing on the backup quarterbacks because they don't get reps in practice a lot. It's just the guy that they want to play gets all the reps. In this case, you know, Kenny Pickett, who's the former first round pick out of Pittsburgh University. And then they they liked Trubisky last year for some reason. They signed him that couple year extension and they just buried Rudolph. But Rudolph looks far more competent than either of them right now. And it's just kind of insane that they, I I just wish I could see what's going on in practice where we're not seeing how much better Rudolph is, but apparently he is. And maybe it's just one game that caught him off guard. And these guys have a tendency to turn back into a pumpkin, but it's very interesting, you know? Oh, I totally agree. Let's change tactics to the Sunday game and talk about the Colts who got, you run into a buzzsaw at Atlanta going down 29 to 10. Yeah. So uh, the uh, Falcons made a quarterback change from uh, Desmond Ritter, Taylor Heineke, who did a good game manager performance and apparently let the um, skill position players actually play instead of just turning the ball over constantly and including in the red zone, like Ritter was known for. And do you think that has had more to do with the quarterback change for the Falcons or was there something in the game plan? Well, it was a little bit of both, I think. I mean, at the end of the day, the Falcons got what they needed from Heineke. Mm-hmm. I know that Smith had said that Ritter was going to be the quarterback for the rest of the year. This was a move that they absolutely had to do to salvage their season. Mm-hmm. There, You just can't win with Ritter. Heineke, 16 of 22, 171 yards with a touchdown, no interceptions. That was the first half. They scored on three of the five possessions, and that let Atlanta establish the run later, where they had 124 rushing yards in the second half and 5.9 yards per carry. It was exactly how Atlanta was trying to game plan to win all year long except for the first time they were actually able to do it. As for the Colts side, they had some uh, rough offensive line issues, and Minshew did not play well. Minshew's been up and down. We've seen enough that I'm not going to say he's turned into a pumpkin. We've seen him recover from a lot of games like this. But uh, I was trying to look up while you were talking, Is did was Michael Pittman out for that game? Because he did not show up on the stat board. And if he's not playing, that could be a big problem when – He's been the guy who's been getting 12 targets a game for Minshew. Uh, the concussion protocol for Pittman was from the hit from Steelers safety, DeMonte Casey. That was the one that got Casey suspended for the year. Okay, so he did not play. That confirmed. Correct. Yeah, that's if he sees still the concussion protocol now, you can guarantee he didn't play. And that's why Casey's uh, habitual line stepper has been uh, suspended for the season because of multiple violations of the illegal hit rule. So, right in that particular one, I don't know what he was supposed to do, but 
it mm-hmm. is what it is. Well, um, in any case, the yeah, Minshew was awful. Twenty thirty seven with a pick, barely two. UB rating under sixty. But the Falcons also had six sacks and eleven QB hits. Mm. Fifteen and, pressures coughed up. And uh Jonathan Taylor only averaged two point four yards per carry. So all that to me adds up to very poor offensive line play. I would say. So we know that the Colts have some really good pieces on the offensive line, but you know, maybe they're not quite done with it yet as they continue to uh, build. Look, the Colts are in an interesting spot here from a team development perspective because they're in the playoff hunt without their star running back for half the season, without their young quarterback for the whole season, basically. And arguably, they have their tackles. They've got an all-star center. They've got a pass rush that's pretty good as it stands. All told, they don't really have a lot of needs at positions that you have to draft high first round. So from a team building perspective, yeah, you want to win and you want to try and get a young team to the playoffs. They're not high enough where a game or two losing would matter. So they're not in Tankapalooza. They're strongly in the playoff hunt and might still win the division. Mm -hmm. So they're actually, I think, in a pretty good situation here. But the Colts, I think, we talked in the offseason how they like to swing for the fences. I think their next draft, they need to fill some gaps and go for some high percentage plays more than they do in on draft day, typically. Mm. On to the game that I was most excited about, the Lions heading up to the North to win the North. Sorry, Santa, Lions rule the North. Lions 30, Vikings 24, and Minnesota. This was an incredibly hard-fought game that the Vikings just gave it their all and fought through some injuries, and it was eventually just too much to overcome. Melifonwu, who had the game-clinching interception, was the NFC Defensive Player of the Week this past week. He also had a number of tackles, uh, some passes defensed. It was a great safety game. That's his position. He only started starting in with the week 14 game against the bears. He carries the unique distinction of being the first player drafted with a pick. They got from the Matt Stafford trade. Hmm. Well, it looks like it's finally paying off a year and a half later, clinched him the division and it got Stafford, the super bowl. So, you know, now it's officially win-win and um, yeah, that was, <laughs> A huge play because that ball was thrown to uh, Justin Jefferson, who already had 141 yards and a touchdown. So welcome back to the NFL and fantasy lay- play for fantasy players who stuck with them during the IR all year. You might have gotten to the finals with that performance. and uh, But they're also kicking themselves because if uh, Malafuano doesn't make that pick, that might be another uh, 40, 50 yard touchdown to win the Vikings the game. So you saw Jefferson was pretty mad at the end of that game because you could argue that ball was thrown a little late and off target by Nick Mullins. And I don't think uh, the Vikings were very happy, but he did put up 400 yards uh, in that game as a third, fourth stringer for the Vikings, but they didn't seem very happy with his performance. But, you know, alas, it's a divisional rivalry. 
And it was good to see them fighting for their playoff hopes and also playing spoiler for the Lions. And a win there would keep them in the division race because they played the Lions again in, the, in week 18. But yeah, the, you, the Lions defense plus Minnesota's offensive line issues that we've talked about all year long mm. kept the Vikings to 17 yards of rushing for the game. All of it from Ty Chandler. Madison had two carries for minus one. Nick Mullins, one carry, one yard. It adds up to seven, eight carries for 17 yards yeah. by Ty Chandler. So for zero for the others. Yeah. The Nick Mullins, 22 for 36, 411 yards, two touchdowns. Looks great until you see the four interceptions. And the four sacks. And just going back to the running game, too. This is let's not forget Ty Chandler had a career game a week before where he put up 120 some yards uh, on the ground for the Vikings. So to turn him back into a pumpkin uh, and hold him to two yards for carry is pretty impressive effort by the Detroit Lions looking to uh, force everything, you know, into Nick Mullins and win the division for the first time in 30 years. Yeah, this is a Lions defense that has improved significantly since the Bears game. The Lions defense was bad for about a month before that. And you're still going to have to, if you're a Lions fan, you're still going to have to, you know, outscore people because they are giving up a ton of yardage through the air. But the run defense has been good all year and it's been especially excellent the last few games. The Vikings were one dimensional from the Lions running defense, Mm -hmm. which allowed them to sit back and pick off Nick Mullins four times. Yeah, they gave up 411 yards. The Lions did. Uh, The defense allowed 139 yards on the final four possessions, but with two interceptions. So the the offense was able to come from behind. They were down 21-17. So Vikings fans today are kicking themselves because when we saw Kirk Cousins go down, he was a very polarizing character. And as a quarterback goes, how valuable is he? He's 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 like a bitter, higher profile version of Brock Purdy, where people don't really appreciate how good he is, but also fade him for, you know, not doing well. And like last year's Vikings team, they won 13 games, but people said, eh, they got lucky, right? Well, a lot of Vikings fans are kicking themselves because their last four losses without Kirk Cousins were by one point to Denver, two points to Chicago, three points to Cincinnati, and six points to uh, Detroit. And you got to wonder, if Kirk Cousins was playing those games, they might have won two of those games, or three, or all four, or still none. But the point is, they might not be seven and eight right now. They might be currently challenging the Lions for the division title impossibly have beaten them that game you know so yeah the last those last four losses mullins and dobbs had a combined 12 interception uh turnovers 12 turnovers and by the way they're one in four in their last five games their one win was three to nothing against vegas so i i do think the vikings need a quarterback badly i mean mullins dobbs sanity were good stories but they are in a tailspin right now, losing four of the five games, and they could have won any of all, any or all of them, and they could have lost any or all of them. They could have easily been five and zero or four and zero, uh, and it's it's sadly turned into a lost season for the Vikings. But they're not as bad as I was expecting, you know, going into the season because I thought they were going to massively regress. I've actually been impressed by them getting to roughly five hundred, you know, this season. So 
they've shown me more than I thought they had, you know, when we go back to our preseason podcasts. Yeah, I would also chalk some of this up to division game familiarity. The Minnesota Vikings have a highly unusual defense. They have those three safety looks. They blitz from everywhere. They're the most blitz-heavy team in the league. But this is the second time the Lions have played them. They played uh, they play the Vikings twice every year. And in these division games, especially if you've got a really unusual look offensively or defensively, that matters a whole lot less in, within the division because they see it so often they know every trick to possibly slow it down. Yep, that is true. And it will only get worse for the Vikings when they rematch in a couple of weeks, unless the Lions have shut it down. But they might not because they're still in the play hunt for the one overall pick or uh, the bye week. That is true. Another team that has just had a surprisingly not quite lost, but basically lost season is the Packers who did manage to escape the Carolina Panthers 33 to 30. Remember when we were saying last week that um, Barry's, you know, timing is perfect here. They need a game to, you know, have a good defensive performance and get everybody to stop talking about getting them fired. And then they coughs up 30 to the Panthers. It was a really bad one too. I mean, this is a game where the Packers were winning 30 to 16 in the fourth quarter and somehow the worst team in the league led by their worst league offense managed to rally back by two scores and tie the game with four minutes left. And if it weren't for that big time pass to Romeo dubs who caught the ball and then lost it rolling out of bounds, but in a play that normally they overturn and would rule it in and complete, um, they upheld it, so the Packers, you know, ended up getting in field goal range for the game-winning field goal with 22 seconds, so they still won the game. But I don't know a single Packer fan who walked away from that game happy, and I believe every Packer fan is now in uh, lockstep with Fire Joe Barry after this game because they were embarrassed by the Panthers' comeback, and it was um, just another feather in the cap of the Joe Barry resume. Yeah, here's what you're talking about. In the fourth quarter, Bryce Young, who has gotten better late in the year, like young quarterbacks do, has played well fourth quarter in a couple games in a row, but this is ridiculous. 13 of 17, 177 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions, 148.4 passer rating. That's just the fourth quarter. <laughs> that sounds like Joe Barry prevent. What was that, uh, the one you were talking about, just throwing endlessly underneath the Thielen, who had 94 yards? Probably also DJ Chark, who had 98 yards and two touchdowns. Both of those touchdowns in the fourth quarter, yeah. And he wasn't, by the way, much worse last week in the fourth quarter. So he is improving his ability to perform late in games. Mm -hmm. Bryce Young, but you also have to give a big fat heaping assist to the green Bay Packer defense. Agreed. And, um, and what, what did help them win the game was Aaron Jones having another monster game. He's only had a couple this year, but he did go off for 127 yards and 21 carries for 6.0 yards per carry, which was really good. 
And I, I think the Packers offense is just better when they have Aaron Jones. Yeah, they finally got around to featuring him again. And lo and behold, the Packer offense unlocked and they got the 33 points. Uh, but I would be remiss if I did not mention that Jair Alexander got himself suspended for this week's game coming up because of the coin flip for conduct detrimental. You're looking at me like I just grew a second evil head. No, Um, I'm waiting for you to elaborate on what happened. Okay, so here's what happened. Jair Alexander, who's from Charlotte, so it was allowed to come out on the field and call the opening coin toss at the beginning of the game. He's not a captain, and they kind of rotate captains, but he just kind of threw him out there, and he'd never done it before. All right. They suspended him for this, the Packers did, for the next game, because what he did was he called the coin toss, tails, I think, and it was tails. So referees turned to him, and Jair Alexander said, I want our defense to be out there. And the referees looked at him like he was crazy, as Alexander reported in post-game or with later comments. He's like, they turn to him and goes, you mean defer? And he's like, yeah, I guess. Because in the NFL, the rule is you are choosing when to choose to take the ball. So you never, ever, ever, ever say we want to kick or we want to play defense. Because that means that you are choosing your kickoff ball now and you are choosing to kick off. And then at the second half, the other team will get their choice and they will choose to receive. And therefore, you kick the ball off to start both halves. Is that what happened? The Panthers got the ball both halves? No, the referees corrected him and nothing actually happened. Why was he suspended? Conduct detrimental. I still don't understand it okay. because by because by saying something like that, they the referees could have could have instead of defer the referees could have made the Packers kick off in both halves. But to me, I don't understand why you suspend him for this. That's what I don't get. Also, didn't say he's choosing to kick off. He just said he wanted his defense on the field and the refs corrected him basically saying you defer and he's like yeah sure so it worked itself out that that seems like overkill in my opinion and if you got justin jefferson in a fantasy championship that's good news because jair alexander shut him down last year and uh they are playing the packers next week uh in uh, packers minnesota it seems like a control freak panicking kind of move to me i i just don't get it If you put him out there without him knowing exactly what to say and exactly what to do, that's on the coaches. I agree. Coaches, the coach should suspend himself and fire the defensive coordinator. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. On to a much better defensive showing. The Browns uh, won down in Texas 36 to 22 in a game that was not this close for most of it. No. Air Flacco all the way. And it turns out that uh, he likes him some of his Amari Cooper. Oh, 
Yeah, if you have, I feel bad for everyone who went up against Amari Cooper in fantasy football this week in the semifinals. Not that I didn't did in one league that I lost in, but um, yeah, Flacco. I mean, where did this come from? He's been playing so well that he now has the Jets fans retroactively mad that they didn't try to go bring him back and go with, you know, when Aaron Rodgers got injured because they just stuck with Zach Wilson and their defense played all, all year, but they eventually got eliminated. Now they're watching Joe Flacco do what he does best. He chucks it deep and this game balling out with Mark Cooper had 265 yards and two touchdowns. And he might throw an interception or two, but he trusts his defense to get him the ball back and allow him to keep making big plays. It's actually really, really fun to watch. And I like it because usually when they go with a backup quarterback, they just go, hey, let's lean on Jerome Ford's 1.7 yards per carry or Kareem Hunt's 1.6 yards per carry. And uh, then they just chuck the ball down. The defense just gets tighter and tighter. But Flacco, as long as they're going to let him go deep, he's going to go deep. He's a veteran. And, um, I think because he's a veteran, he's less likely to turn back into a pumpkin than a lot of these other street free agent uh, rookies or sorry, quarterbacks that are going on heaters, to be honest. And I'm actually legitimately excited to watch the Browns right now. Yeah, you have to say that they are playing better right now than at any point in this season. Sorry, Sean. This is a Super Bowl defense, always has been. They've now unlocked the offense by suddenly turning Amari Cooper into the downfield threat, which we didn't think was going to happen. But, you know, when you've got Elijah Moore and you've got David Njoku and all these guys that can work the intermediate to underneath, why not just send Amari Cooper deep? Especially when you've got a guy that can deliver the ball still with accuracy down the field. It's causing me to reevaluate his value during his time in Baltimore. Yeah. And I, 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 it's causing New York to reevaluate their coaching. And since Flacco, he had he he lost his first game as a starter with, against the Rams, but he's three and zero since, throwing for over three hundred yards in every game, including two games over thirty. And the only game he actually struggled in was the Bears game, where he you know rallied from a seventeen to three loss deficit to win the game in the fourth quarter and play hero. And um, other than that, like he's been good. I mean, he's going to be tested again with the the Jets defense next week. But he's honestly, like I said earlier, you touched on it. This is the best they've been playing all year. And that includes when they had Deshaun Watson, you know. And uh, again, like Russell Wilson, are they better off without them, you know, without the big money quarterback that they traded tons of capital for? I don't know how sustainable it is, but Flacco has one of the all-time greatest statistical runs in Super Bowl history when they went 4-0 with the uh, Ravens. And, you know, we saw Eli Manning do it twice. This could be his second run. Yeah, you just nailed it, and I totally forgot about it. It's a great point. We have seen in the past Flacco get red hot. And just carry a team or an entire offense to the Super Bowl. And that's the level of Joe Flacco that we're seeing right now. And it is, I mean, the the Broncos, the Browns fans have to be thrilled. I'm thrilled. I'm And I'm a Lions fan. I was about to say, Seth, if you are listening, I'm about, I'll say 80% as giddy as you were in the preseason. 
And that, that I mean, that's really high praise because I've never seen anyone more excited for the Browns predicting 15 and two. So yeah, that's pretty high praise. And I honestly think they are a Super Bowl contender. I mean, right now the Chiefs are the third seed in the AFC. The Browns are, sorry, the Browns are basically locked into the one, uh, the fifth seed or the top wild card. Um, they crushed Jacksonville, who is a who right now would be their first round opponent. I'm pretty sure the Browns could travel to Jacksonville, who has no home field advantage, and beat them on the road, right? And I know, think they're a much better team. Jacksonville's death spiraling right now. Exactly, and then like you have Baltimore there, which you know I still think Baltimore deserves to be the favorite. But then the number two seed right now is Miami, who really good finesse team that's scary. But the Browns defense can beat them up and slow them down. And with Flacco making big plays, they could, you know, they could actually, I could see them go, going into Miami and beating them. And you know, the Browns fans are going to travel well to Jacksonville or Miami in the playoffs. It's going to be a home field advantage for them. So I, I could see this being a really good run. I mean, honestly, Buffalo's playing pretty well. That's the wild card right behind him as it stands. But I could see Cleveland, Baltimore, Miami, and Buffalo, to me, are the four scariest teams right now. Sorry, Chiefs, you're playing more like the 2019 Patriots that sent Brady packing than the 2006 Patriots that made the Final Four and without a receiver and almost made the Super Bowl. That's my opinion. But, you know, they're still there. But the yeah. Browns are in that list, the top five. I am not disagreeing with anything you say right there. That is, I totally believe in the Browns as a Super Bowl contender. And right now, if you're just looking at how teams are playing right now, I don't think I could find definitely not four, maybe probably not three teams that are playing clearly better than Cleveland right now. Oh, let's not rule this out, too. Their win over Houston was huge for playoff wild cards. So now they they have the head to head with two games to go, and they put Houston two games behind them. So Houston, you know, other than multiple playoff scenarios, is all but stuck behind Cleveland. So I think uh, Cleveland has not clinched, but they are the closest to clinching you can be at this point without clinching. So um, and then while Houston. They they were a really good story, but they've uh, turned back into a pumpkin the last two games without Shroud. I mean, they did manage to beat Tennessee, but they lost to uh, the Jets pretty badly, and then they lost to the Browns in a game that's you know, closer. So Houston's a little bit on the struggle bus, and maybe Stroud will get back and they'll get right against Tennessee next week, and maybe there'll still be a chance to uh, turn the division crown uh, game. Sorry turn the last week game against our Colts into a division championship game because the all entire NFC South lost last week. Really quickly on Stroud, it tells you that he is the real deal because already at this point in his career, he's forcing teams to play with the safeties back. Houston rushed for just 72 yards in the loss to Cleveland. Now, again, some of that Super Bowl defense. It's also just um, – <laughs> But yeah. With no Stroud throwing the football, they have really struggled to run. They've struggled to play defense because they haven't been able to get a lead. Mm -hmm. You know, that's all of this is a great indication that the engine of this team actually is Stroud already in year one. Yeah, I'll agree. Go Bucks. And yeah. You know, we talked about the one game that uh, Flacco has struggled against is now 
you know, adding to the Bears late season resume of competency where the Bears took a quick 21 to nothing lead over the Cardinals and then held on to uh, beat the Cardinals 27 to 16, which is funny saying held on because, you know, they still won by two scores. But um, to hear people talk about it, it sounded like a Bears loss, but, you know, they held on. And uh, the big thing was uh, Deontay Foreman was a late scratch heading into the game. And uh, I believe it was for personal reasons. I think there was a family related issue. And Khalil Herbert came out looking like he hasn't since before his injury uh, this year. I know uh, I was in Chicago watching this game with my extended family and my cousins and stuff were talking about this. Like, this is the Khalil Herbert we expected to see early on in the season, which we did see until he got injured. But he hasn't looked very good. But this week, I mean, he was put up 5.6 yards per carry, scored a touchdown, broke 100 yards. I mean, he did everything, and uh, he was the engine to the Bears' offense. I mean, he averaged almost as yards, uh, almost as many yards per carry on the ground as the Bears did yards per attempt in the air. And um, this was the first time that we've seen Khalil Herbert look fully healthy with a fully healthy Justin Fields at the same time, mm-hmm. and it looked like it was twenty twenty two all over again. And the other question I have too is. Is there an issue like last week? The Bears were rolls, rotating all three of the running backs, and this is becoming an issue now, not just for fantasy football, but this brings a bigger question is, do a lot of running backs just play better when they get 20 carries per game instead of 12 or 9? I think that might be something to that because this is Herbert broke 20 carries, and it was one of his best games. They get better as the game goes on. You can when you can go with two running backs, even two running backs splitting the carries 50 50. But in my 25, 30 years of watching NFL football, three, a, a true three running back, you know, committee means nobody ever gets a feel for the game. Everybody's popping in, popping out. Nobody's in rhythm. Nobody gets the just that moment where the seas part and you know where the hole's going to be before it's there you yep. just don't it nobody gets it, you're less than the sum of your parts when you do it that way people don't talk about this enough but more carries you get the better you are at feeling out how your offensive line's blocking and opening up holes for you and which holes to hit and this is to be honest, this is the game, the running game that I was expecting to see when the Bears started the season. We were expecting Foreman to be the third stringer and and the rookie sensation Roshan to be the backup. Where Roshan had a good game of his own. He carried the ball nine times for 4.1 yards per carry, but he still wasn't as good as Herbert. And both of them are very good. And Roshan's runs still continue to look scary. Like he runs with aggression, like reminds me of like young Marshawn Lynch, you know. And he's a better pass blocker. So we're not we're not seeing the end of him either. But it, it goes back to what I've been saying all year is that these guys have three good running backs. And that's why we're not seeing more Roshan carries is because Kula Herbert has can is capable of games like this. And same with Deontay Foreman, who we've seen put up pretty good games too. And um this is an interesting one though, too, because despite the win. What what are you hearing about Justin Fields at this point? It doesn't sound like people care that they're winning games anymore. Okay, please keep in mind that I am not talking about Bears fans because every legitimate Bears fan I've talked to has said, we want Justin Fields, he's playing great. 
they are locked into what's actually happening with the team. But all of the professional writers, you know, your Peter Kings, your, and you know, whatever, your NFL insiders are acting like it is a complete formality that Justin Fields is not going to be the long-term quarterback for Chicago, which worries me for a lot of reasons. Well, to me, I don't even understand that take at this point because this goes back to last year when they talked about drafting Bryce Young versus in trading Fields because, you know, like the family guy uh, meme, a boat's a boat, but a mystery box could be anything. It could even be a boat, you know, and just replace boat with Fields. You know, maybe Bryce Young could be the next Justin Fields. And now we're seeing the same thing with Caleb Williams and uh, Drake May. And people who watch a lot of college football aren't impressed by Caleb Williams' uh, big game performance. And even my little brother, who might be a little biased because he's a Pac-12 guy, so he wrote roots against USC, uh, did point out that there's a good chance that Caleb Williams hasn't hasn't handled scrutiny and he might not handle the Chicago media very well if things don't go well, whereas Fields has done nothing but get bad press and shown nothing but improvement. Like, He's at the point where he started 34, 35 games, and you can see the split between his first 17 and last 17. While his last 17 are virtually identical to Lamar Jackson. It's exactly what I was touching on, who is the front runner for MVP. Lamar Jackson just has a better team around him. And people and, and like there was even a joke where um my, my brother was telling me that there's a lot of the in Chicago, the big thought is that uh Luke Getze and I think it's Lucas Patrick, the offensive lineman, and uh, is Lucas Patrick and Getze is the offensive coordinator, came from Green Bay, and a lot of people think they're uh, double agents. And right as he tells me that story, that that story, Field scrambles for fifty yards. That's called back for holding on Lucas Patrick, and he just looks at me dead serious and goes, "See, double agent," and just walks out of the room and goes grab another beer. <laughs> and, To me, it makes me laugh because this is what's happening with fields is people who don't watch the game look at the raw stats of this 160 yards throwing and stuff, right? They don't understand he's managing the game while he's using his legs. And that that was a 50-yard play that would have set up at least a field goal attempt, right? That was stricken from the record. And then we go back to last week when they lost to the Cleveland, where Mooney dropped the game winning, Hal Mary, Tanyan dropped the game, you know, the 90, the 60 yard touchdown pass. Another double agent from Green Bay, by the way, Robert Tanyan. And uh, and then, you know, um, in this matters, if his teammates come through and don't commit a, a holding penalty away from the ball on a scramble or just catch a ball that hits him in the breadbasket or the hands three times. Uh, Fields' stats suddenly look really good, and the Bears are, you know, 10 and 7, and not, you know, 6 and 9 or whatever. And talking to my cousins and stuff, a lot of people are in Chicago, at least the fans, are retroactively going, Man, this is a this, this is a 10 and 7 team, not a 6 and 9 team. And this is what I was saying in the preseason, you know, but the Bears didn't know how to win, and they're losing a lot of close games like the Minnesota game, like the Denver game, like the Cleveland game, like the first Detroit game. That happens when you're trying to win. And I'm glad the Bears took the lead. But even then, the Bears, a lot of people, like the Peter Kings and stuff, think of the Bears as a game against the Cardinals as a failure 
because they were up 21 to nothing early and let the Cardinals back into the game. And it got close for a little bit. It was within a one score at one point, but the Bears came through and put the game away when it mattered, which is what they need to do. Letting a team in and closing it out to me is better to me what for what they need to do than just blowing them out, you know, start to finish, in my opinion. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, to me, I don't. I'm with you in the fact that I don't see how anyone can actually follow what the bears are doing on the field and credibly say, you know what we can do better than Justin Fields. So it blows my mind that nobody's talking about extending Justin Fields, at least no professional writers, no national media. Right. And by the way, even if they don't extend him, they still can exercise his fifth year option and have two more years on a rookie deal. And you can get a boatload for the number one overall pick again, you know, and we saw that. And here's the, here's the thing is like, um, I was talking to my, like my uncles and my cousins and stuff. And the general feel with the fans is I just, why, what's the point of blowing it up a year ago? If we're going to start showing signs of improvement, just to only blow it up again. You know, there's a point where you have to win games. I'm not arguing that moving on from fields would be the right thing to do. In fact, I'm arguing the exact opposite. Agreed. But what worries me is all of these reports that it's a foregone conclusion that they're moving on from fields or they're going to draft a quarterback or they're going to trade it for a pick and get a quarterback in the short term and get their quarterback later after they build the whole team around it. Whatever it is, this has to be either everybody's grossly incompetent which is possible. And nobody's reevaluated this Bears team since they were, you know, in week four. And now we're a much different Bears team. It's possible that they haven't realized the Bears team has changed because they're spending all of their time watching Kansas City and the Dolphins and the teams on the coast. But what I'm worried about is what if this is coming from management where they've just soured on fields at the front office level? Maybe they're worried about him running so much. He gets hurt. I mean, and he can't, and they think he can't stay healthy. Uh, he Maybe they just stuff. don't want that flavor of quarterback. I hope that's not true. I mean, he does a good job sliding, getting out of bounds. I don't see him taking a lot of hits these days when he's been running the ball, but I mean, that's a good question. It's it, is, it just seems weird that when the, the I, I hear more about the Bears moving on from Fields on their four and two run than I have where they almost beat Cleveland and Detroit and going almost went six and zero oh, than I have before that. So like I, I guess I don't know what the point of winning the games are is if we just discount them. And yeah, if you're gonna move them on, then you don't even take them off of IR. Like Ramondre Stevenson's now on IR, <laughs> right? Midwest football podcast at gmail.com. It is time for our week 17 picks. And one more thing. This is the segment where we look at one more thing for each of our Midwest teams during their game coming up for the upcoming week, week 17 in this case, and try to figure out just a little bit more about what makes each team tick. We make all of our picks straight up. We don't use the spread here. And we are going to start chronologically with the Thursday night game. And that is the Jets at the Browns. And this is kind of a weird one. Where What's your one more thing here? So 
I think every time the Jets play, it mucks up everything. They, they, if you watch games going into the Jets and after, it always changes the narrative because they have such a good defense, good especially the pass defense. It throws everything off, and everyone expects, it, expects dip, weird stuff. I expect this is a game where I could see Flacco, quote, turning back into a pumpkin, because, but I'm not going to throw him under the bus because this is the type of game where their cornerbacks can get three or four interceptions, and you know Flacco's still been throwing them. But the Browns' defense is really good, and I think they're going to match those interceptions, in my opinion. So um, my, my one more thing is I want to see if Flacco can still make the big plays against the Jets, who are really good pass defense, borderline elite. Yeah, that is exactly where I was going with this game. So what I'm looking for is the, the Amari Cooper matchup one-on-one out on the – on the outside, Ooh, a good that one. will be a really if you like that sort of wide receiver corner, you know, hand fighting and interplay, that'll be really fun to watch. But I still think the Browns are going to win this game because both of these teams have a really good defense. The Browns are better offensively because they have at least a competent quarterback. But you do have a valid point. The one game in which Flacco's faced a significant pass rush was Chicago and he struggled. Mm hmm. I'm still going with the Browns too. I think it's uh the defense is a mirror Spider-Man mirror match and the offense is better. Yep. On to the Saturday game, another night game for the Lions. And this is a huge one at the Cowboys, both teams leading their respective divisions at the moment. If the Lions win this game, then they get the tiebreaker against Philadelphia because of common opponents. So my one more thing for this is to see how high the score can get in two teams that seem to be able to put up points and how many fantasy championships can Lions and Cowboys fan, uh, teammates bring to uh, the table in week 17, which is when a lot of fantasy football championships are uh, decided. Don't bench your CD lamb. <laughs> the, uh, the Lions and Cowboys both want to play from a lead and then uncork the pass rush and make bad things happen. But especially the the Cowboys, that's what they do. They've they they're one of those teams. The the narrative has been they make bad things happen to bad teams. That being that said, the Lions are not a bad team. This is probably going to be a shootout. But it's going to come down to, I think, running back versus running back. And whichever team does a better job establishing the running game to give their offense some balance is probably going to be uh, better off. And I like the Lions in this one. So I think a lot of people are picking the Cowboys because the Lions have, quote, lucked into games recently. But I think that Dan Campbell is going to have the Lions ready to play in a way that Mike McCarthy doesn't always have the Cowboys up to play. We see a lot of uh, late game blunders by McCarthy. And I think that that might be the ultimate decider in a close game. So I'm going to go with the lions. Yeah. I mean, you also have to be careful with the, with Dan Campbell because you never know when he's going to go for it on fourth and 17 from his own two. But I mean, I really feel like the lions the Cowboys may have bigger stars, but I feel like the Lions are a more complete team right now. Agreed. And that's going to, you know, if I was, if you were a betting person, definitely bet the Lions because they're giving up almost a touchdown. 
Yeah, at home. No, no, it's on the road. Um, it is at Dallas. And Pollard is all the hype he got. Jameer Gibbs and David Montgomery have both been way better running backs than he has been this year. Yeah, last week was not a good week for the sanity of Dallas Cowboy fans because you had Pollard continually fail again and again to get in the end zone on from the one yard line while you have Ezekiel Elliott leapfrogging a defender while running free for the Buffalo. Mm -hmm. On to the Sunday game, starting with your Bears who are hosting the Falcons. I want to see how so Taylor Heineke had a good um game manager game last week for the Falcons in their win, but he's more known to be a YOLO ball type guy who gets a little careless with the football. And the Bears defense has been very opportunistic since Montez Sweat started putting pressure on quarterbacks for Chicago. And I want to see how many turnovers the Bears offense can create or defense can create against um the Heineke's making a second start this season because he might have looked a lot better than Desmond Ritter, but now he we are preparing for him in Chicago. And Heineke's not exactly, you know, he didn't exactly win the job in Washington the last couple of years. I want to see how the Bears offensive line holds up against a Falcons pass rush that made Minshew miserable last week. Mm-hmm. Now, I hope it doesn't end up being um, offensive turnovers for the bears but i think it'll go a long way to to showing the bears have had a lot of success the last couple weeks just dominating the line of scrimmage and we'll see if that continues against a falcons team that dominated it themselves last week yep i'm picking the i'm i'm picking the bears yeah so and similar note i think that the uh bears for all fields faults he tends to take too many sacks because he doesn't turn the ball over a lot. He doesn't force a lot of bad interceptions. And I think that he's going to limit Falcons. Like he might go back, regress to early season form where he's taking, you know, five or six sacks and killing drives, but hopefully he won't be turning the ball over. And then the bears defense will help him out by returning the favor. And it'll just be like a punt, you know, when the bears take the sack and punt it away and then the Falcons turn the ball over and then the bears end up with better positions. You're taking the Bears? Yeah, I'm taking the Bears. Yeah, uh, a punt is not the worst play when you're playing outdoors at Soldier Field on New Year's Eve day. Absolutely, especially against the cold weather dome team. Oh, yeah. Uh, the other early game on Sunday will be the Raiders at the Colts, speaking of dome teams. And, boy, you talk about two teams that it's hard to get a beat on. What's your one more thing? Get me to it. I can't, just, I can't make heads or sense of this one. I mean, the other thing, too, is, This is a massive game for playoff implications. The Raiders are still involved. The Colts are right in the thick of the wild card hunt and the division. They're technically tied for their division. They can both, both teams could win the division if uh, they win. So, um, man, I want to see if Pittman can come back and uh, revive Minshew and back into his old form because that is a scary pass rush. So you are going to need receivers who get open very quickly. Yeah, I feel like the Colts are a more complete team, but I'm really worried about that line holding up against Max Crosby and the Raiders' pass rush. So that's what I'm going to be looking for if the offensive line up front can give Minshew time to throw or open up some holes for Jonathan Taylor. The Colts are probably going to do well, but I'm going to pick the Raiders here because that pass rush scares me. (sighs) 
I can't, I don't, for the record, I don't even want to pick this game because the Raiders have been so inconsistent and so have the Colts. And I agree with everything you're saying. I'm just going to go and just think that Minshew's going to rebound and uh, get rid of the ball, especially if he's got his uh, receivers back. So I'll I'll take the Colts reluctantly. (laughs) Yeah, you know what the NFL stands for? No logic. (laughs) Sunday, the first of the afternoon games is Steelers at the Seahawks. We saw Mason Rudolph absolutely light up a bad Bengals team. Now he's got to go in one of the toughest places to play in all the NFL. I, I want to see how uh, Mason Ray- Rudolph does when he's in the super loud, uh, whatever they call the Seahawks stadium nowadays. They've changed it like three times. And uh, they're one of the, the loudest stadium in the NFL. I want to see how well he does with, you know, changing the playing call and everything in the second start this year. Yeah, I think a lot of this is going to come down to how Rudolph responds to the hostile environment. But I also want to see if the Steelers can establish the run game against the Seahawks defense, because that's going to open up some shots down the field. We know the Steelers defense is going to play. So if the offense can avoid putting them in bad positions, it's going to be a good, good game for the Steelers here, but I'm still going to pick the Seahawks just because I'm not, I don't trust Mason Rudolph yet in this kind of environment. And the Seahawks are still fighting for their playoff lives. I, I'm also going to take the Seahawks. They, it is one of the toughest places to stay. It's a long flight to Seattle, and it's a very long stadium, and it is a very inexperienced quarterback. The second of the two afternoon games is, you know, one that's going to get some headlines is the Bengals at the Chiefs. What's going to happen here? Oh, it is a interesting matchup because they technically both coming in at over 500, but I would argue both fan bases are pretty disappointed by this. Uh, we're probably not going to see a third straight year of these two teams meeting in the AFC championship game. So this might be the closest we come to that. And um, this is at Arrowhead and this is going to be, I, I'm sound like a broken record now, but, Arrowhead went back and forth with the Seahawks for loudest stadium for a while. And this is going to be a tough environment for Browning to play. And, you know, we saw him possibly get exposed last week. So I want to see if he can bounce back from the humiliating beatdown loss to the Steelers against a very tough Chiefs defense on the road. Yeah, the Bengals defense is what I'm looking at here because they are taking on a Chiefs offense that is reeling. And they need after getting just torched alive last week by Mason Rudolph, they need a win. And if they're going to get it, it's because they're able to take advantage of the Chiefs in the middle of just self implosion. I mean, Chiefs fans have to be looking around at each other going, We're not worse than the Bengals, are we? And they might be. I still think the Chiefs are going to win this game because they're better offensively despite the drama than most people realize, and they're definitely better defensively. Yeah, you beat me to the punch. I think the Chiefs' defense has been underratedly good this year, and they have been the engine that's carried them to nine wins so far, and I think it'll carry them to a tenth win and kind of put that division away despite Denver and Vegas being, you know, 
still still lurking. Right. On to the Sunday night game. There is no Monday night game. So this is the last game of the week. Uh, New Year's Eve night, 8.20 p.m., Packers at Vikings. It's our double dip, and it's a classic rivalry. So I'll start with the road team, uh, with the Packers. I want to see how the Joe Barry defense does without Jair Alexander um, against Justin Jefferson. Yeah, I mean, the Packers defense and the Vikings offense is another case of the totally stoppable force meeting the completely movable object. Something's got to give. I want to see the Packers pass defense. Just, I don't know. Just tackle Justin Jefferson on every play. You'll be better off. Just don't just tackle him at the four yard at, after in the first Take five the yards. Yep. I mean, and uh, offensively, can the Packers actually feature Aaron Jones two weeks in a row? That's what I want to see on their end. I want to see the Vikings put on a show, throwing the ball downfield. I want to see the Packers actually feature their running back and try and play a little ball control and bail out their defense. Well, this this works out well because I want to see, you know, if the Packers can play defense against Justin Jefferson and hold him to under 200 yards. But I want to see if the uh, Vikings defense can confuse and get pressure on Jordan Love, who's been, you know, who Jordan Love had a good game against uh, Carolina. Uh, people are forgetting about it because the Joe Barry defense let Carolina back in the game. And, uh, you know, Jordan Love has been had a pretty solid first year. And uh, on the road, again, I sound like a broken record, in a dome in, in Minnesota is a very tough place to play, especially since they have a lot of animosity. A lot of division titles have been won between these two teams. Not this year, though. Yeah, the Vikings, both these teams really still have some wild card aspirations. You, this is basically an elimination game. Lose a little time. Oh boy, this is tough to pick. Uh, I'm gonna go with the. I'm gonna go with the Packers because we didn't really talk about it during the game. The Vikings suffered injuries to I think both Jordan Addison plus Hawkinson's going to be out for the year, so I. I feel like those really took the starch out of the Minnesota offense. It had a lot, a lot, of, lot to do with why the Lions were able to win. So I'm going to go with the Packers here. And I mean, now you're talking Justin Jefferson, but flanked by like KJ Osborne and no names. You know, Ty Chandler is now number two. Whereas we talked about underrated Hawkinson has been a volume monster for Minnesota, and then it's allowed. You know, Addison's had a lot of big plays, and I think that's. A really good point. They they've lost a lot of offensive talent, and uh, hmm, I got to think about this for a second. But I think I got to go with the Packers on the road, despite it being a really tough place to play. But I just don't know if I can pick Nick Mullins or whoever they're even playing. I don't even know if Mullins is still the quarterback after last performance. It's hard to tell. So, yeah, that's a really good point. That's all the time we have, though, for the Midwest Football Podcast, and that's going to wrap 2023. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back at the top of 2024 to finish off this NFL season, so don't go anywhere. We are very glad, very happy, very honored that you spend the time with us on any given week that you choose to listen. Thank you so much. Thank you also to Raymond for our intro and outro music, Chris Brandley for our logos. And one more time, 
all of the things that we have to be thankful for as 2023 comes to a close and we reflect. And I hope it's been as great a year for you as it has been our first year doing this podcast. So uh, thanks again, everybody. But until we see you in the new year, we're going to take it into the locker room for the fifth quarter. We will see you later. In 2023, I miss you already.